Hi, and welcome to Watermark's Equipping Podcast, a monthly conversation about faith seeking understanding from Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Caitlin Van Wagner, one of your hosts. This is my co-host, Dr. Oren Martin, our Senior Director of Equipping here at Watermark. And we're joined again by our guest, uh, Blake Holmes, who's our lead pastor here at Watermark. Welcome to episode two, y'all. Excited. Great we're to be so here. We're so excited. So today, uh, we thought we should start with uh, the in the very beginning. So we thought, let's start with the Bible. So today we're talking about the Bible, what it is, how it all fits together, and is it relevant and applicable to us today? So I think the question I have for for you, Oren, is let's start at the very beginning. What is the Bible? Yeah, the Bible, I would say something like the Bible is God's written word given to us that proclaims all of his purposes that are summed up in Christ. So I would say simply, the Bible is God's word. It's 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 written for us. Uh, it's it's what Christians. This is what Christians have believed for two thousand years. Uh, is is that you know? As all, one of my favorite church fathers, Augustine says, uh, "The Bible is God speaking." So where where do we go to hear God speak to us? Do we go to a cloud? Do we go to an experience? Do we go to you know whatever it is? And and Christians have believed that we go to the Bible because that's where God has spoken, and, and we see that most clearly. You know, I think it's not just some kind of subjective experience. We see that most clearly in the cross of Christ, uh, a historical event in which uh, the very Son of God uh, took on flesh. He became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we couldn't. We, we deserved to die for, for the punishment for our sin. He took it upon himself uh, so that through his life and death and resurrection, which is important because it's a historically mm-hmm. witnessed event. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have all of these events written down for us in Scripture uh, that, that, that unanimously, uh, that in, a, in a unified and coherent way, declare God's purposes for us in Christ. Okay, so um, the Bible is God's Word. It's God speaking God's to us. Yep. So that's a big claim. Yeah, how can we tr- claim. How can we trust that that claim is true? Yeah. Yeah. How would you explain that to, to a skeptic? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I would start with the resurrection. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't believe in. Oh, it's funny. You, you kind of say it two ways. I believe in Jesus because of the Bible. I believe in the Bible because of Jesus, and, okay. and they're not mutually at odds. I mm-hmm. think they're complementary statements. Uh, so you maybe you think about. You know, I actually think about Acts chapter seventeen, where where Paul is is speaking to uh, to those who love to talk about new things, and so Paul goes and, and speaks to them, and and he sees that they're very religious people. Uh, he sees they're so religious, in fact, that they're that they're worshiping all kinds of gods, uh, and and he notices they have this religious instinct in them. Uh, which I would say today, we all have that religious instinct too. We're, we're all worshiping something. We're all seeking to find our confidence, our value, our identity in something. And so Paul walks by and he he asks a very uh, a very curious question, right? Or says a very curious statement. I, I perceive that you are very religious. Uh, I see that you are worshiping these these uh, these gods. And in case you missed one, you actually built an altar to an unknown god just to kind of cover your basis. And and what does he do? He proclaims who this god is. This is a god who doesn't live in a temple made by man. Uh, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything but gives to mankind life and breath and all things. Uh, and, and then he he kind of makes uh, you know contact with them to, just to say like, like the God that you're worshiping, I'm proclaiming to you the true and living God. Mm-hmm. And, and how does he know that? Well, in, in verse uh, verses 29 and following, 
He this says is Acts in, 17. Acts 17. He says in verse 31, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to, to us all by raising him from the dead. And so what Paul proclaims to them is this is the God you worship, and this God has made himself known most clearly by raising Jesus from the dead. Mm-hmm. And then he calls them to, to believe in this Christ. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I would say to a skeptic, how, how can you trust God's word? Because God's word speaks to promises from hundreds, I would say thousands of years before it ever happens. It speaks to and promises that this event will come, that there'll, be, there'll come a day when God will come and save his people. And he'll do that by becoming a man, by uh, living the life that we couldn't live by dying the death we deserve to die and by being raised from the dead. Well, we see that in, in places like Isaiah. We see that in Psalm 22. Uh, it goes back all the way to the beginning that, that there's going to come a person uh, who's going to come through the human line, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to he's going to do away with Satan, he's going to do away with evil, he's going to do away with sin. Uh, and, and we see that when we turn to the pages of the New Testament that God has done that in Christ. So all of these promises, all of these prophecies that God spoke, have been fulfilled in Jesus. And because of that, we can trust him and we can trust his word. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the center point of why the Bible should be trusted. Absolutely. Okay. So what would you say to the person who is saying, yes, but I need proof. I need evidence that this book that was written over thousands of years and contains so many different books inside of it and so many different stories that it is true and can be trusted and in my most skeptical, that it's not all just made up. Yeah. How, what would you say to that person? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, thankfully, we've had, we have answers. Christians have had answers, and they've been asked that question for hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, you know, one, one thing I would say is, is if you go back to even the Old Testament, uh, you know, prophecies like Isaiah that he made 700 years before Jesus was ever born, I mean, the, the specificity of those prophecies of, of there's going to come uh, a child who's going to be born of a virgin. Uh, there's going to come one who will, will come and save God's people by dying for their sin and by being raised from the dead. I mean, 700 years, there are dozens and dozens of prophecies, not just from Isaiah, but from the other prophets. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus steps on the scene and he fulfills every one of them, uh, all, all of the events. Uh, and, and so, you know, this this is, you know, before he even stepped on the scene, this this is what Old Testament uh, believers in God, this is what they believed about God's word. Uh, so when Jesus comes on the scene and he, and he fulfills all of those things, I think it gives incredible confidence that uh, this isn't just make, made up. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just fabricated. Uh, as well as, I would say something, and Blake can, can jump in if he wants to, but I would say something like the manuscript evidence that we have. What does that mean? Uh, so, you know, we, we, we don't have the original writing. So say, you know, Luke or Paul, the, the actual like parchment paper that they wrote on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have copies and we have copies going back all the way to, to as early as there's one manuscript that is about the middle of the second century, uh, a fragment of the Gospel of John, uh, as well as literally thousands of manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts in multiple languages. Uh, and all of them uh, declare unanimously 
uh, the same things, right? That, that, that they say the same thing, they speak the same thing. There's no error between them. You know, even even in the the, the copy mistakes, you know, that maybe a, a word drops out or a letter drops out or something like that, or a manuscript's been been uh, mm-hmm. been damaged in some in some way. When you compare the thousands of manuscripts, the the exactness or the precision and the agreement between them is staggering. I mean, it's something like you know, 95 percent of them agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when you fast forward to you know the mid 1940s, some little kids were playing uh, in, in caves and they, they stumble across these big like containers and they open them up and there's scrolls and in the scrolls are copies of books of the Bible that have been preserved for 2,000 years uh, and plus years and you know a whole copy of Genesis, a whole copy of, of Isaiah and they match word for word the earlier manuscripts we have when we compare you know, again thousands of copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are so it's staggering. I mean, no no other work like it. Shakespeare, the Iliad, no other literary work like mm-hmm. it in terms of, of the number of manuscripts and the, the the agreement we have between them. Okay. It's really a great question. It's one we've all asked. It's one we should all ask. And so um, I, I welcome that question. People ask it all the time. I, I would say that um, Paul also speaks to there's a difference when we come in faith, when we come with a real desire to want to hear from God, um, that by the power of his spirit, he's the one that grants us understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that may sound funny um, to some people, but the natural man, apart from God's spirit, I have no desire to even want to know God. I have no desire to want to seek his word. So there really there are, there are good answers in terms of the accuracy and detail of prophecy that mm-hmm. Warren mentioned, and also the, just the manuscript evidence of the number of copies we have and how early the copies are to the original writing. Mm-hmm. And we just have to be honest. So um, when I was, took English classes at school, no one was saying, um, hey, do we really believe the Odyssey and the Iliad were written when they were and that we have a reliable copy and Homer wrote this? And No one was asking that question. But yet when you compare just the Iliad and the Odyssey to the earliest copy we have and the number of copies we have, the Bible far outweighs in manuscript evidence the accuracy of what we have today. So if you're going to apply the same standard, I would just say, hey, be consistent. But if you're going to throw out scripture and say, hey, it's not enough, it's not enough. Okay, great. Well, then we're going to have to take away ancient literature and the things that we just assume to take for granted. And we're going to have to throw those out because we have what, you know, I've heard others describe as an embarrassment of riches mm-hmm. in terms of copies and early um, attestation of, of, of when they are written. So, um, so I, that's prophecy and manuscript evidence are, are two, um, I think, helpful points, data. But I, I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that apart from a work of God's spirit in my heart, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to be blind to even accept that. Um, and so to really ask yourself, hey, if, um, if you want to know this, to go to the Lord humbly and say, hey, show me. Help me mm-hmm. to have the eyes to see. Mm-hmm. So. That's awesome. So the Bible is God's word revealed. Mm-hmm. And I heard y'all talk about manuscript evidence, overwhelming agreement of manuscript evidence and um, specific fulfillment of prophecy. Mm-hmm. But I love, Blake, that you said it's also about the work of God, the spirit of God yeah. that brings about understanding. And, yeah. and the last thing I'd add, so the Bible's 66 books. Okay, now you think about this. 66 books written over 1,500 years, mm-hmm. roughly 40 different authors, two languages primarily, Hebrew and the Old Testament and 
a little bit of Daniel's <laughs> different, but and then uh, the New Testament is Greek. So, but yet here's the amazing thing: it all has one central theme, and this goes to Warren's central point. So, um, I like to think of the Bible. If um, I've got a true confession to make, can I just make a confession? Oh, please. Okay. Oh, okay. So you know, I'm I'm a country music fan. Do you know what Rebecca and I did last weekend? You're going to be surprised. Did you go to a country music concert? No. Did you go we dancing? Went, no. We went to the symphony. Okay, that's a stretch for that's a guy like me. That's not country music. No, it's not country music. That's what I'm telling you. It's, I have a confession to make. I was an imposter. I went to symphony. I took Rebecca. To George Strait wasn't there. George, no, Alan Jackson and George Strait were not played. But here's the whole point. It really is quite beautiful when you're visually watching mm-hmm. a symphony play, right? You have the strings. You have uh, the piano. It's a piano concerto as well. It's a big word of warning. Come back. Yeah, and I don't know okay, what that means. All right, so you have you, you know you have percussion. All that. my point is this: when you take scripture, you have seventeen historical books in the Old Testament, five poetical, seventeen prophetical. All of them point into Jesus. You get to the you have four Gospels, Acts is a history book. You have the Epistles, then you have a apocalyptic book. That's how your Bible is put together. But just think about all that. It's like one symphony, right? All playing, when you, when you read all of that, it makes one sound, a beautiful sound, pointing to Jesus Christ. And it's just remarkable, the consistent message, when you think, hey, this was written by people over a lifespan or a time span of 1,500 years, people not even knowing of one another, and yet it all is playing the same song, oh. pointing to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. That is. Okay, so how Bible 66 books, mm-hmm. Old Testament, New Testament, how did we literally pick these 66 books and say, this is the Holy Scripture? How did these come to be that they all were knitted together and this became the Bible? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I would say is we didn't pick it and, and really nobody did. Uh, so, you know, what I mean by that is is God's people merely received and recognized mm-hmm. what had always been the case. So it wasn't like, you know, people sitting down around the table and saying, okay, let's, do you like, do, do, who likes Genesis? Raise your hand. Who likes Isaiah? Raise your hand. It's, no, these 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 had been received and accepted by God's people uh, because God spoke to them and they, and they believed it. And so, you know, when it came to be the case of, of you know, how do they make it to the Old Testament, um, that decision had already been made. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he, you know, says things like, I came to fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in Luke 24, mm-hmm. they would have understood that because that would have been in existence. That phrase, law and the prophets, law, prophet, psalms, mm-hmm. which is a shorthand for the Old Testament for two to four hundred years before Jesus was ever even born. So, you know, all that to say is just, uh, you know, how it made it into the Bible is that God spoke through Moses, God spoke through Isaiah, God spoke through all the Old Testament writers, uh, and, the, and they wrote down his words such that what they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to say, and his people received it as such. Uh, and, and you know, the same, th- same thing goes for the New Testament. When Jesus stepped on the scene, uh, we have authors like Luke or authors like Paul who, who sat down and wrote down uh, the life and events and the, the meaning of Jesus, uh, who he is, what he did for us and for our salvation, and, and how that applies to us today in the church. And how did we decide who who literally like decided these sixty six books go together? Yeah. Somebody had to have gotten together and gone. These are the sixty six books. Yeah. How did that? What was that process like? And when did that take place? Yeah, well, the Old Testament took place hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, uh, and, and that was just you know 
basically as as God's revelation grew, uh, then it eventually kind of just became it became written down and compiled in a book. And so it was just had always been accepted. With the New Testament, is a little bit different, you know, because we get to the New Testament and it speaks about the Old Testament as if the Old Testament had been written for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the New Testament, it really kind of began organically as you know the the, the prophets and apostles uh, wanted to write down either what they saw firsthand as eyewitnesses, like you know John or Matthew or whatever it is, or uh, those kind of ministry companions uh, that were with the disciples in doing ministry and and hearing what Jesus did through through kind of their eyewitness testimony. So you think about Mark and his relationship with Peter or Luke and his relationship with Paul. Uh, we, we see that kind of chronicled in the book of Acts. And, and all of it was an effort just to, we want to write down, like 2 Peter 1 says, we want to write down what we saw with our own eyes, what we heard with our own ears uh, concerning who Jesus is and what he did through his life and death and resurrection. And so, you know, there, there came a point in the life of the church where, there, there began to be a lot of kind of uh, lies and and uh, false kind of heresies being and other other kind of letters being written claiming to be God's word. What time period was that? Uh, first century. Okay. Yep. Um, and I mean, second century as well uh, into the third century. I mean, there were you know books that began to be circulated uh, and claiming to be God's word that that clearly taught and said things that were contrary to the Gospels, contrary to Paul's letters, contrary to the Hebrews, contrary to Revelation, contrary to the Old Testament. And, and Christians, be, because they've had these letters for centuries, uh, I mean, decades and decades, up to centuries, they, they were automatically like, no, that doesn't belong there. Uh, b- because this is what this is the faith that had been handed down through the saints as Jude's recess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, they immediately recognized, no, that's those don't belong in Scripture because they clearly teach what's contrary to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, contradict even what Jesus taught and have false claims about Jesus and what Christians believe and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all that to say there came a point in the life of the church where they had to draw the lines in the sand and say, what do we do with with all these false books, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do we do? with? And they unanimously agreed they're not God's word. Think about it like this. So the early church through the book of Acts, it is being born. They're experiencing persecution. There's challenges from the outside, mm-hmm. right? And, and persecution from the outside. And there's also false teachers on the inside. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it, it forces clarity. Like, hey, what do we believe? And what is true? And so to Warren's point, I, I just think about it like the ABCs. So first being, is it apostolic? Is it, con- is it handed down from an apostle or a companion of the apostle? Is its belief consistent with the teaching of, of with um, what the apostles taught and with the rest of scripture? with the Old Testament, and then um, uh, did the larger community accept it? So the, the books that we have now were circulated, and, um, and so the ABCs, I think, are helpful. And the, just the question is the one I'd rephrase, hey, who decided? You know, it's, to, to Orrin's point, no, it's, the, what, it's what was discovered of what God wrote or what God okay. uh, intended for That's us better. to receive. So when we think about what was inspired, it's not that— um, Paul was inspired is the scriptures that were inspired. So the, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Mm-hmm. I, I think these words are just helpful for us to mm-hmm. recognize when we talk about inspiration and and what is inspired. Some of us probably think, oh, I saw a sunset, so I was inspired, right, to paint this. No, no, no. What God did is he used Paul, Peter, other writers to perfectly record in the original work, exactly what he intended to convey. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And so because that was inspired, we believe that the original writings were without error. They were inerrant. And, um, and so that, that was the process. And then the church, because of persecution and the need to teach what is accurate and true and offer an explanation, then they were compiling the books that were received by the local, the larger community of faith. And that's therefore how you got um, the books. And then false teachers and apocryphal books and other miscellaneous books, they were rejected. They were re rejected by the larger community because they weren't connected to an apostle or they weren't consistent with belief or they weren't circulated widely. So, and it, it is a, a process, so. Great. Okay, so if we've covered what is the Bible and how everything fits together, and then how can we trust it? The question becomes, um, in 2023, why is it relevant today? Why are we still reading this? How does it apply to me sitting here in 2023 today? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, and and you know, if you're a Watermark member, and uh, th this this is going to become, I mean, th th you're going to, this is going to be obvious. Uh, because there's a reason why we come together every Sunday, and we don't read from literary works like Homer's Iliad, or we don't read from any other—we we, we center our life in the church around God's Word because we believe that God still speaks through His Word, uh, His Word that testifies to Jesus Christ, right? And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, we, we live in a world today that's that's not much different than first century you know, you think about Paul's letters to, you know, the the, the, uh, the church at Ephesus or churches in, you know, in around the area of Ephesus or the church at Colossae uh, where we have, you know, the book of Colossians or his letter written to them. You know, he talks about sins like sexual immorality, uh, impurity, uh, passion, uh, lusts, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander. I mean, I, I, th I think, you know, the, we, you could lift that letter and, and put that letter written to us today and— and we, we see that around us. We see those kinds of, of, of sins being committed against people, mm -hmm. uh, murder, right? I mean, we see brokenness all around us. And not only that, to bring it to a personal level, we look inside of us and we see that same kind of brokenness. And, and it causes me to ask the question, can, can there be uh, a solution to this brokenness? And Christians have believed and confessed and have preached week in and week out, that yes, there is a solution to this brokenness, and his name is Jesus, who, who came to fix this brokenness. And he did that by entering into our broken world. God the Son, very God of very God, took on our humanity and lived the life that we couldn't live. He obeyed God's word perfectly, unlike Adam did, unlike Israel did, unlike anybody in the history of mankind did. He lived the life we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. Uh, he was crucified at the hands of, of sinful men. And this was in accordance with God's plan, uh, that, that Jesus would be the substitute for our sin. Because we understand that sin, sin deserves death, right? The wages of sin is mm -hmm. death, Romans says. And Jesus took the wages of sin upon himself and died the death that we deserve to die. And because of his righteous life and obedience, he was raised from the dead, which was the vindication, right? The triumph that he was the righteous one. And so through his death and resurrection and putting our faith in him, God then forgives our brokenness and, and promises that there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to return and he's going to right every wrong. Revelation 21 tells us and when he returns, he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. He, mm -hmm. he's, there's going to be no more death, no more sin, no more disease, no more conflict, no more divorce, no more terminal illness, no, no, more, no more brokenness. 
and he's going to he's going to deliver his people who trust in him to a new world where we can experience him in joy forever. This is so fundamental to the questions you're asking, Caitlin, because if you if you don't understand the heart of God and the love of God and the and the reason behind why he has chosen to communicate us through his son and through his word, you're, you're going to come with a presupposition of the word that's inaccurate. This, this is not a rule book to tell you you're, you're bad, do this, don't do this. No, it's, it's to offer you um, God's instruction for wise living. Mm-hmm. It, it's no different than the instruction I give my kids. I have four kids. I don't tell my kids to do this or not to do this, to rip them off or to restrict them or because I don't love them. I give them instruction so they might be protected, so they might grow, so they might have understanding, so they would live wisely. And it's the heart of our Father, and it's the love of Christ as to why he communicates with us. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's relevant for today is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures, God breathed, are inspired by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, even Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so um, th- when we approach scripture, we do believe God is speaking through us by the power of his spirit to those specifically who have received the gift of God's grace. And because of that, not because of what we've done, but because of the fact that God has changed our hearts through the finished work of Jesus Christ, um, we can come and hear from God and respond. And so he's, he's offering us his word so that we can navigate life's choices and make choices that are going to be honoring to him and what's good mm-hmm. for us. So you made a confession earlier. Can I make a confession? Sure. So there are some aspects of scripture that um, I can just, I think I can just struggle with understanding how they're relevant for me today. Sure. So Levitical law. So the talking donkey in numbers. There are just places where I go, I know this is, this connects. Mm -hmm. What do we do when we encounter Specifically, they tend to be, I think, probably fair to say, like, there's more of them in the Old Testament than the New. What do we do when we encounter things like that that feel so far removed from 2023 mm-hmm. and the connection feels like it's so difficult to make? How do we connect those things? It's a great it's a great question. I love the fact you asked about Leviticus, right? It's in most people's Bible reading plan when they're <laughs> trying to read the Bible in a year. They get to, I think, Leviticus about this time of year, and they're like, okay, I'm out. All right. <laughs> Um, here's what I'd, here's what I'd say. Um, so again, like I said, all scripture Mm -hmm. is inspired by God. Leviticus is, um, God's word to us and we need to understand it. What the law does specifically Leviticus is it teaches us an immense amount about the character of God. So although it is true, we're not, um, under the law anymore. Mm -hmm. What we understand though is God's redemptive plan. What we see is we're part, we are a part of a much bigger story than just what we're living in today. God's redemptive plan from eternity past to, to eternity future. And so the Levitical law teaches us about the, the nature and the character of God 
And it teaches us how Jesus ultimately is that fulfillment for us. Mm -hmm. He was the perfect Israel. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Martin, I'm sure, will love to answer this question as well. But I actually, when I read Leviticus, um, I'm encouraged because I have a greater um, awe for who God is, his demand and standard for holiness. Mm -hmm. I see my need for a savior. I see how lackadaisical I am in my approach to God. I see my need for him. And um, and I see that the God I serve is holy. He is altogether different and separate, but he's done something about that for a sinful man like me. Um, and then I see how the Levitical law is just a shadow of the substance. So when you read Hebrews, Hebrews is a great book to read while you're reading Leviticus, because what happens is you see all of this is just the whole sacrificial system, the tabernacle. It's a shadow of the substance of what is to come in Jesus Christ and how he fulfills it. Mm-hmm. So... I'll let Dr. Martin add to that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a great answer. You know, and I think, you know, I think about Leviticus written thousands of years ago, different time, different culture, different language, different different nations around the nation of Israel. Uh, and so there are there are cultural, you know, I think it's hard for us to understand sometimes because there is a there's a historical distance. Mm-hmm. There's a cultural dis- distance. There's a there's a language distance, be, you know, because they're not speaking English. Right. Uh, but but, you know, as we kind of, you know, if you get a good study Bible, you get a good commentary on Leviticus. They're really helpful to kind of bring to light those cultural differences. Mm-hmm. But but in those cultural differences, there is one thing, like Blake said, that God's communicating is that he is holy. He calls his people to be holy. His people aren't holy in and of themselves because they're sinful, but God has provided a way for his people to be forgiven and to live the lives that he's called them to live, which he does through uh, the atonement, right? Through, through the atoning sacrifice uh, of, of, um, of an animal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, again, like Blake said, that was a shadow, right? But that communicates the same thing uh, that we have now in Christ, right? That God is holy. He's called his people to be holy. We can't be holy in and of ourselves because we're sinful. And the only way that we can live the life that God's called us to live is by his greater sacrifice that he's provided, who is Christ, uh, which the New Testament calls the, the spotless and unblemished lamb, right? So those were all shadows, important, right, in that cultural context, mm-hmm. the shadows that pointed to a greater sacrifice in a way that we can be forgiven. And so, you know, a lot of those laws, like, you know, not, not mixing fabrics and those kinds of things, there, there are good answers to uh, uh, a different culture then of why that would signal that God's people are set apart. Mm-hmm. That may not apply to us today, mixing fabrics. I mean, I think I haven't looked at what my what my fabric is made of in my clothes. <laughs> um, but if it's mixed, it's, it's because I don't live in a culture where that's that scene is being set apart. Mm-hmm. In our culture, it's going to look like something different, but the message remains the same. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we are called to look different than the world around us, and God's made that possible because of what he's done for us in Christ. So what I'm hearing is that when I approach or find myself in one of those spots of the Bible where I, maybe there's a cultural difference that I yeah. don't understand, mm-hmm. two questions that I'm hearing from you that are really, that I could ask myself is what does this reveal about God's character, yep. and then how does this point to Christ? Yeah. To When I encounter those aspects that I'm like, I don't quite get that. That's yeah. so good. All right. So my next question is, where do I fit in the Bible? Where do we fit in the Bible? Do we fit in the Bible? That is a great question, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Blake, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. You know, so this goes back to the point that Orrin just made about how the the Bible was written at a specific time to a specific people for a specific purpose. Um, I think it's helpful to think about it like this. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Like, um, I'm not 
a part of the church at Colossus to whom Paul wrote to. So I've got to do the hard work to figure out what was Paul's original intent when he wrote to his letter to the church at Colossus, mm-hmm. the book of Colossians. I've got to go and overcome the cultural language um, barriers, that distance, and ask myself what was Paul's intent when he wrote then so that therefore I can figure out that purpose and apply it to my life today. And so it was written for me. I benefit from Paul's instruction, but I also have to recognize, hey, I've got to do everything I can mm-hmm. to eliminate my bias, my preconceived notions, you know, and it's not, hey, well, what does the Bible mean to you? What does the Bible or what does that passage mean to you? No, no, no. What the meaning resides in the text. And it's my job to do the work to figure out what does the text say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I, you know, I would say that you know it's a, it's a it's a good question because you know we can we can think about it two ways. Uh, do I fit God into my story? Do I fit the Bible into my story, or or does God and His Word invite me into His story? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's amazing to think about because you know Scripture is is one story about God's redemptive purposes that are promised in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. And and I'm I get to be part of that story as as God invites us into his story. Uh his story of, of redeeming uh not, not just people, but redeeming this entire world. Uh and you know, he calls me to be a part of that by redeeming me first and foremost. You know, Colossians one says, uh, by delivering me from the domain of darkness, from sin, uh, and transferring me to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so God invites us into his story so we might live in ways that that uh, that 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 bring our joy by knowing him and bring us joy in making him known to others and where to find this life. I love that. So the Bible's written not to us but for us and it's God's story that he invites us into. Yeah. That's how we fit in the Bible. Okay, so where does Christ fit in the Bible? That feels like a basic question, but I really to understand, I really want to understand where in the Bible do we see Christ? Yeah. How does he what is his role in this in the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah, great question. You know, I think a natural response would be where do we see Christ in scripture? We immediately go to the New Testament, mm-hmm. which is which is great, right? Because, you know, in the very first words of Matthew, right, at the beginning of the book of of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, right? So we see Jesus Christ from verse 1 of the New Testament. But you know, as readers, I think if we're, if we're being good, thoughtful readers, we're like, well, who, who is this Jesus, right? Uh, and, and Matthew will go on to to give us a picture of who this Jesus is, what he says, what he does, um, you know. And and all along the way, Jesus is is making statements like, "I didn't come to abolish the law; I came to fulfill it." Uh, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses spoke of me. Moses wrote of me. And so all, all that is to say that we can't understand Jesus fully or as deeply unless we understand Jesus uh, as being part of the Old Testament story. And so that's super important because, you know, Christ helps me understand the Bible because Christ is the point of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think we have to go to any— there's a lot of passages you can go to. Luke 24, I love this story because it's it's just on the heels of Jesus being raised from the dead, uh, and he's beginning to to make himself known. And he appears to his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. And uh, so, you know, on the first day of the week, it tells us in Luke 24, 13, uh, there's, there's two guys that are walking on a road. I'll summarize the story. And they're walking, talking about, like, the events that had happened. 
And I mean, of course, everybody knew about him. And Jesus literally just kind of shows up on the scene. And he's basically like, hey, guys, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> and the guys are like, haven't you heard? Like, there's this, there's this man who came, and he, he suffered, and he died. And I mean, I mean where, where have you been, right? <laughs> and, and Jesus, you know, just says, like, what things? I, I love his response. He's kind of like just kind of you know, getting, their, getting their, their questions and answers. And, and that's in verse 19 where he says, what things? And, uh, and then they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God. And, and they did all these things. And, you know, as he's walking with them, he, he, he listens to them as they, as they say a statement like, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Right? They had been waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, God's promises of, of redeeming his people. And Jesus basically turns the lights on in verse 25 and says to them, oh, foolish ones slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is just shorthand for the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he, they go on to eat. He takes the bread, blesses it. He breaks, gives it to them. And it says in that moment, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn when he made known these things to us? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all that to say is, I mean, a lot going on there, but it was, it was Jesus that opened their eyes to see that he is the point of scripture. Right, and as Blake said earlier, it's it's not an intellectual problem. Belief is not merely at root an intellectual problem. It's not a matter of being smart. You don't have to have ten degrees to believe in Jesus. It's a it's a spiritual problem. Why we don't? And and it says here that Jesus was gracious, and He opened their eyes to see and to believe who He is and what He did for them and for their and their salvation. So. How does Christ help me understand the Bible? I would say we can't understand the Bible apart from Christ because he's the point of it. Yeah, the kind of a witty way of saying this is the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It is all one book that all ultimately points to Christ. Mm -hmm. So where is your favorite place that Christ shows up in the Old Testament? That's easy for me. What is it? Um, I love that question, by the way. Uh, So what do you think, Caitlin, is... Like if you were to ask the common man out on the street, okay, if you were to ask them, hey, what's the most well-known Bible verse out there? What do you think they'd say? Even if they don't believe John 3, it. John 3.16. John 3.16. Yeah. Okay, so think about the most familiar verse to all of us. You know, you watch an NFL game, John 3.16 yeah. is up there. All right, so think about what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know how that verse starts? What's the word? Four. four. Yeah, four. Yeah. So four is explanatory. It's explaining something that preceded it. Okay. Okay. So let's go to John 3, uh, 14 and 15. And Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So... My answer to your question is, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, the people are complaining. There's these serpents that are sent out, which they're poisonous, Uh okay? And they bite those who are complaining, and God makes a provision for them. And it's kind of a funny story, right? That they're going to craft a serpent and put it on a staff, and God says, 
If by faith you will look at the provision that Moses has made for you, it will bring healing to you. And so what Jesus says in John 3, 16, he's like, hey, in the same way, when Moses lifted up the serpent and that was the means by which I brought healing, mm-hmm. um, I too am going to be lifted up. And if you trust in me, you'll find healing. So fun fact, if you look at an amulet today or go anywhere in um, a medical community, you actually will see the serpent around wrapped the around, around the staff. That's exactly right. Oh. And it's alluding to Numbers 21 or John 3. That's my wow. favorite one. The more you know. The more you know. There the you go. You know. There you go. Oren, where is your favorite place that Christ shows up in the Old Testament? You can't beat that one on. Come on. You can't beat that one. Honestly, and he was ready. I I was ready. Preview this question with him. I I think it would probably have to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. I mean, I know know that's a common one. But, you know, as as you're kind of reading Isaiah, you know, in the context, you see a lot of judgment. Israel's in the thick of sin. She's not trusting in God. She's not obeying God. And God, as a response, is going to bring judgment, right? Because He's holy, and He mm-hmm. and He has to punish sin. And we and we want a God who punishes sin, uh, just like we want a Supreme Court justice who's gonna who's gonna rightly judge and punish sin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the midst of 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 this context of of sin and judgment, uh, God begins to kind of uh, turn a corner through Isaiah and say, in the midst of judgment, prepare the way of the Lord. Mm-hmm. There's going to come a servant. And, you know, we're kind of confused about who is this servant? Who's the identity? Is it, is it the nation of Israel? Because it talks on, on one hand of he's going to bring Jacob, he's going to bring Israel back. But then in chapter 49, he begins to say, but there's going to be this servant who, who actually is going to bring Jacob back. So there's a kind of a distinction between mm-hmm. Jacob, Israel, and then another kind of servant. And we're like, huh, I wonder how this is going to happen. Then we get to chapter 52, and this servant's going to die. And he's gonna he's gonna take the weight of sin upon his shoulders, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by the end of chapter fifty three, this this servant not only had died, but he's gonna be raised from the dead. And on the heels of that, in chapter fifty four, he's gonna make a new covenant by which God's gonna be their God, and they're gonna be his people, and he's gonna give them new hearts. And in chapter fifty five, not only are Israel gonna be included in this. Uh, but Gentiles. It says that, that foreigners, the nations, will join themselves to the Lord as a result of what this suffering servant did. And so it's no surprise that when we get to the Gospels and we get to the New Testament, Isaiah 53 is one of the most quoted or alluded to text because Jesus is that suffering servant who came uh, to take the punishment of sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven in him and have life in him. Mm-hmm. All right. That's just as good as mine. <laughs> yeah. It's just as good as Listen, mine. Listen, I'll give you both points. Thank so you. the point is read your Old Testament. <laughs> okay. Right. I got it. I got can it. I, can I say what, one of my favorite quotes about the Old Testament? Yes. Is by a guy named B.B. Warfield. He said, mm. he said, the Old Testament is a richly furnished room, dimly lit. Oh, wow. Think about that imagery, right? Mm-hmm. All the furniture is there. It just lacks light, mm-hmm. right? All, all the furniture in the Old Testament is there. Prophet, priest, kings, the sacrificial system, the temple, uh, all these promises that were made by God about a coming salvation. And what it lacked is light, right? And Jesus steps on the scene, and what does he do? He comes as the light of the world, and he shines his light on that Old Testament and shows us he is that better prophet, priest, and king. He is the better son. He is the obedient Israel. He is that temple who mediates God's presence to us, right? The word became flesh and, and templed among us. He is that ultimate sacrifice through which we can be forgiven and we can be brought uh, back to God. And that's that's amazing. Right? That, he shines his light. That'll preach. <laughs> I know, and on that note, um, anything else y'all want to say before we sign off on this episode? 
No, um, other than just to say, um, look, the, these questions are, they're fun to discuss and we want to help people. Um, this is a podcast for our body and this is why we offer equipping classes. And if, if you, this is why we offer great questions. Join the journey. Join the journey so that people are in God's word. If it still feels intimidating to you or overwhelming, it's okay. You just take the next step. You just take the next step. And so um, that's why Orrin's here. It's why I'm here. You're here. So we want to help people. Mm-hmm. We want to equip them. And we've all started, you know, at some place where we're just asking good questions. And God honors that. And I want people to recognize that it's called the doctrine of illumination. Okay, one of the things the Spirit does for us is He gives us understanding. He guides us. So you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. He gives us His people. He gives us His Spirit, His Word. And when we take those steps of faith, that faith-seeking understanding, He honors that. And so um, go to Him in prayer. Read God's Word. Ask good questions. And like no other time in the history of the church— um, there are so many great resources out there for us. And I hope this is another trusted resource for those in our in our body. All right. That's awesome. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Watermark's Equipping Podcast. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you get this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And we will see you soon. Have a great week of worship.